What Opportunity Zone fundraising trends can be gleaned after raising $465 million? And what's next for Opportunity Zones in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. The Crescent Diversified QOZ Fund closed earlier this year after raising $465 million, making it among one of the largest Opportunity Zone funds in the country. Now they are preparing to launch the Crescent Diversified QOZ Fund 2. Joining me today is Crescent's Managing Director, Nick Parrish. Nick comes to us today from his home office in Chicago. Hey, Nick, thanks for joining and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Yeah, great to be chatting with you. Uh, really impressed, obviously, with how much capital you were able to raise over just the last five quarters. Uh, we were chatting just a minute ago before I hit the record button, before we went live, about the Novogratic survey that has recently been released, demonstrating that among the funds that they had surveyed, uh, over $10 billion has been raised by Opportunity Zone funds to date here. And you represent you know, close to 5% of that number. So obviously a very large fund that you have there and raised just over the last five quarters approximately, and among the largest opportunities on funds in the country, as I mentioned. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that capital raising effort, the journey that your company went on to raise that amount of capital, and how you were able to achieve it in such a relatively short time frame? Yeah, so so happy to walk you through it. And and listen, our our story is a combination of of probably skill and uh, and some luck. Um, You know, when we embarked on this effort um you know in in late 2018 i think we like everyone else were intrigued by the potential merits of and the attractive tax benefits of the opportunity zone program but we had a healthy dose of skepticism as well i mean it was a new program you know it was at that point under 12 months old it's a complicated program it was a program that was based on draft regulations, not final regulations. So there was a lot of complexity around it. And so I think we we approached it with caution. But ultimately, you know, our our focus was on investing in good, high quality assets, in many cases, assets that we would want to otherwise own, where you could find that good balance and that cross-section between opportunity zones and, again, high quality, you know, long-term investments. And so our view in, you know, focusing on those aligning ourselves with top tier partners and, and great talent, I think really drove a lot of that success. And so we were, you know, we were early to the game and we, we thought that was important as well. I think the view that there are only so many of those places where you do find the alignment of, of these opportunity zones and, and these high quality investments, we felt like those to the market first would be able to take advantage of those. And so you know, we, we based on that, that principle, launched an effort in uh, December of, of 2018. And, you know, our journey was not a linear one, as I'm sure most were. I mean, this was, again, a, a new program, and it, it took a period of time for investors to, you know, first to understand the mechanics of the program and how it works. And then, two, uh, ultimately for, you know, high-quality firms like ourselves and a few others to, to emerge you know, as kind of real investable options. And we were fortunate and 
ultimately that combination of things gave us a lot of momentum and you know we were fortunate that by the earlier part of this year had you know over 460 million dollars in capital round up for these opportunities so we're excited to be kind of one of the uh you know the the pioneers if you will in this in the space oh i definitely agree with that you guys certainly are one of the pioneers in the space uh, just for the amount of capital that you've raised very impressive I want to talk about your investment strategy in a minute, but first I want to ask a little bit more about capital raising. What types of investors are you seeing coming into the fund? Maybe you can get me, give me a sense of the average investment size, how many investors you have roughly, and have you noticed any trend uh, uh, or shift in the types of investors that you've seen come in over time as relates to either family offices or advisors or through the uh, direct retail channels? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I think what's, first of all, what is is very unique about Opportunity Zones is some of the mechanics that govern who is eligible to invest. So unlike any investment opportunity or fundraise before, you know, investors have very strict time limits. They are limited to obviously to capital gains only. And so this is not your traditional fundraise. I tell people you got to take everything you knew about, you know, private equity or real estate fundraising and throw it out the window because that these different mechanics create very, very different incentives for investors and, and create different, you know, challenges and, and pockets of opportunity. Um, I think for us, you know, initially that those timing constraints and deadlines um, drove a lot of the early activity. So I think a, a lot of what we saw initially were people who had finite liquidity events meaning they sold either um, a piece of property or a business and they were on the shot clock. They had 180 days. They had a tangible gain that they had that was eligible to invest. And they knew they needed to deploy that capital and had to find a solution. So they didn't have the luxury of hemming and hawing and, and, you know, waiting for a different fund to come online. They were kind of driven toward um, the solutions that were at hand. And so, that was our early investor base. Our firm, you know, was founded by, you know, a couple of private equity investors and entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of the folks in our ecosystem and our client base are, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs. So we had, you know, a strong network of people who were entrepreneurs who were regularly selling assets, selling businesses. Um, and so that that was an early group. I think the other interesting one, too, was also real estate investors who had traditionally used 1031 exchanges as a way to defer and avoid taxation where, you know, they were constantly on that kind of cycle of 1031 and like-kind exchanges. Opportunity zones emerged as a interesting and in many ways more flexible uh, and less onerous way to defer and ultimately to deflect those taxes. So early on, we saw a lot of um, real estate investors look at this as an alternative for, for 1031 exchanges. So, that was a you know a significant amount of our client base early on. I would also say some of the early movers were you know single family offices. You know that that tends to be a segment of the market in which we operate. You know as also a, a large multifamily office. You know we tend to network with a lot of those single family offices. They tend to be a little bit more uh, willing to be a early mover into an opportunity, and so. That was our client base initially. I think what we saw over time was an evolution as you know regulations became final, as more investors adopted um, opportunities on strategies, as we started to get projects done. I think 
you know, very critical milestone in our fundraising was when we broke ground on our first project, which was a, you know, large uh, 40-story, 46-story apartment tower in downtown Houston uh, that we're building in partnership with Heinz. Um, I think seeing that caliber of investment opportunity within a QOZ program really went to validate the thesis. And so following that, you saw much broader adoption from, you know, wealth advisors, financial advisors, other high net worth investors who weren't necessarily doing this because they had a particular gain to shelter, but viewed this as a way to potentially reposition their portfolios into longer term real estate to trigger some pent up capital gains on their balance sheets from accumulated stock positions or, you know, uh, you know, other assets that may have um, uh, experienced a gain over the last 10 years. So we saw much broader adoption. And, you know, as a result, when you look at our fund, you know, the 465-ish million that we raised, you know, we see a wide dispersion today of investors, anywhere from a couple hundred thousand dollar, you know, kind of accredited investor clients up to, you know, we have a few in the 20 and $25 million range. So really a, a pretty wide dispersion among clients and, and investor types. And some of those smaller investors coming in more on the, the tail end, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I certainly, it feels like that was a momentum. And I think depending on how COVID and the related financial crisis plays out, I, I do think that, you know, that will be a significant part of fund too. Again, just thinking about the life cycle of the opportunity set. I mean, this is now, I, I think, proven to be an opportunity set and a program that's here to stay. Um, I think some folks have proven their ability to, again, raise good, high quality, quality, for lack of a better term, institutional caliber firms, um, you know, and that's going to, that's going to create a lot, uh, you know, broader comfort in the market. And we would expect as a result, you know, broader adoption from, kind of advisors and, and individual investors. Yeah, it seems that public awareness of the program uh, is still a challenge that the community of Opportunity Zone participants is struggling to overcome. But as time goes on, public awareness becomes higher and higher, more high net worth individuals becoming aware of the program, it becoming more ingrained in the financial advisor, wealth advisor community as well. You mentioned the project that you're undertaking with with Heinz. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Crescent's overall investment strategy of the Opportunity Zone Fund and, and what, what regions and asset classes primarily are you investing in? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So again, kind of going back to our, initially how we got involved, you know, I, I think we, again, we were intrigued by the opportunity set. Um, but as we read about, you know, the requirements the tax benefits, again, the, the, the real magic of this program, you, you have your uh, deferral of your capital gain from the asset you sell. That's nice. Depending on when you invest, you have a slight reduction in the capital gain liability that comes due on that. That's also a nice benefit of the program. The real benefit of this is being able to invest into these opportunity zones to be able to hold them for 10 years and ultimately be able to sell them without incurring a capital gain. That only makes sense if you generate a gain on your asset. This is not like other tax programs where you may get tax credits or deferrals or deflections. It's, it, you have to have a gain to deflect in order for this to, to, to make sense. And so, you know, that really drove our philosophy around, you know, again, finding this intersection of good, high quality assets 
in many cases, assets we'd like to own. So in markets that, that we like, asset types that, that we would otherwise own, and, and again, with good high-quality partners, that's what really drove our philosophy. So th- this was about making good long-term investment decisions, you know, low leverage, long-term assets. You know, this was not a license to go take a bunch of risk. So where we ended up focusing was, first of all, solely on the real estate side of things. I think we initially looked at private equity and real estate. Again, a lot of our background is also in private equity. Uh, the initial regulations made it challenging to, you know, invest in operating companies and businesses in these zones. So we chose, uh, at least this time around, to focus pr- predominantly on real estate. Uh, and then within real estate, focus specifically on development. Um, as you may know, there are some requirements in the program that, that make you put up a certain amount of capital in substantial improvements. That's just much easier to do in, in the context of development. So focused on development, largely focused on core urban markets, uh, largely primary markets. You know, we like high growth cities. We find that, you know, the zones in those cities for a few reasons tend to support these projects with, you know, again, a 10-year longer-term horizon tends to be supportive of those. You know, our our um, mandate is uh, multi-asset. It's multi-asset class. Um, we do have a bias toward multifamily. Uh, I think we we feel that multifamily is is a is a kind of asset class that's better suited for that long-term hold period. But we'll look at things in office, retail. Uh, industrial, and in some cases, hospitality. And then, you know, um, looking to partner with a a couple top-tier developers. So that's really what, you know, what drove our our investment thesis. So, you know, we've invested in, you know, our our fund one has seven projects. We invested in markets, again, like Houston, uh, downtown Denver, Portland, um, Nashville, Washington, D.C., Charleston, and Omaha. So all, you know, fairly substantial urban markets. Okay, I've got two questions for you now regarding the multi-asset nature of your investing strategy. It first pertains to just the challenges of multi-asset class just within real estate. And I want to ask you a follow-up question about, you know, your thoughts on mixing private equity into the mix as well. But 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 first that that first question, what what are some of the challenges that you face with having a multi-asset class fund? Yeah, it's, you know, listen, we, we actually, in structuring it, um, you know, we initially went down the path of, of wanting a multi-asset fund. And we did that for a couple of reasons. One was, you know, the view that for long-term 10-year-plus capital, none of us have a crystal ball. Now, you know, we can do a lot of work on, you know, these locations, on the projects, on the developers, um, but 10 years is a long period of time. And so the best way that you can you know, mitigate some of those risks is through diversification. And so we felt that for most of our investors, having a good diversified portfolio with some diversification by geography and some by asset type is probably the most prudent and low risk way to approach the space. So diversification was important. Two, there are some mechanics um, that, you know, while the structure around multi-asset is complex, it does give you some flexibility and timing in terms of how we raise capital and how that capital gets pushed down into some of these projects. It does create some flexibility for us to take in capital and to deploy that to the underlying structures. So those were the two drivers, you know, that caused us to launch a multi-asset fund. 
One of the things we did do, though, was given the dispersion of our investor base, as I noted previously, we were able to create a construct where we had at the core a multi-asset fund, but then we created individual single-asset funds, both structured as, as qualified opportunity zone funds in and of themselves, where we allowed investors to co-invest into those, into those projects. So um, for larger investors that we had, maybe single family offices who had large real estate teams who had experience investing in direct assets, we used those vehicles as a bit of an overflow mechanism to allow investors to access those properties individually. So in some ways we tried to create a best of both worlds, if you, uh, if you will, with that. Okay, I got you. So different fund classes, essentially, to allow certain investors to invest in certain projects? Yeah, we, I mean, we basically structured them as underlying kind of SPVs, which investors, you know, and, and we, we were agnostic in terms of fees. So we gave investors the ability to go into the fund or to a certain extent, go into individual projects. The only caveat to that was fund comes first. The fund would ultimately kind of determine its optimal allocation to a project, and then then the investors, the co-investors, would have the right to whatever was kind of you know left over. That was important to us as well. By the way, it was a really valuable portfolio management tool for us because we had deals that varied in size. Our Nashville project, for example, was a hundred and twenty million dollars. Our Omaha project was twenty million dollars. Having a portfolio with that kind of dispersion, you know, we wanted the position sizes to be a little, you know, a little more comparable. And so we could use that overflow capital as a way to help size positions in the portfolio. I got you. That's, that's clever. Now, for fund two, somewhat following up on my previous question about multi-asset class fund formation, I want to ask you about fund two. Are you potentially planning on now mixing in private equity business investment into that fund as well, in addition to real estate? And then what, and what would that look like exactly? And, and might you get any pushback from, from investors on, on bringing that in? Would, would, it be, would, it be, would that make capital raising more challenging in some ways or, or easier in some ways? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a good question. I don't think we are contemplating private equity at this stage. I think that the regulations have become more clear. They're still not perfect. Um, but I do think there there are ways to do it. We've just not seen the opportunities emerge. I think it, in many ways, the real estate development piece of it is the low-hanging fruit. It's just within the regulations, the easiest to do and where you're seeing the most deal flow. I think over time, the market will evolve and you'll start to see more of these private business opportunities out there. I also think the real estate opportunities are finite. There's only so many you know, projects that you can do within these zones. Private equity is infinite. You can always create businesses in these zones. So that that does not feel to us like an immediate opportunity. And I think, so I think we're probably not going to spend much time yet on the private equity side of things. Two, if and when we do, I don't think we would commingle private equity and real estate into the same fund. We initially contemplated that with our first fund. I think what we found was, you know, when people look at a fund, they like to bucket it into an asset class and having a real estate fund fits clearly into a real estate allocation. Same thing with private equity. 
when you start to commingle those things, you you create some complexities and some confusion around where it fits in an allocation, how people should think about um, return and performance. And I do think, to your point, that that can create some challenges from a fundraising standpoint. So I think at this point, not going to focus on it yet. And if and when we do, I think we would think about it in a, in, in a different and separate structure. Maybe fund three then, right? <laughs> or maybe maybe two two 2.1 or something uh yeah well it we'll, we'll see I, again I, I think you know we have we have background in private equity I, I think the idea of creating businesses in these zones in many ways goes to the original intent of um, the program and so I think we, we feel like eventually you know the industry will go there and it, there will be opportunities we just haven't seen those yet, but, you know, certainly we'll continue to, to evaluate that, you know, as a possibility in the future. Right. To bring up the Novogratic survey again, they actually did break down by asset class type where the Opportunity Zone funds are being raised and operating business still accounts for just a tiny fraction of the total amount of uh, equity raised by all the Opportunity Zone funds in their survey, at least. So certainly... You know, a lot. Of, I, I I think there's a lot of potential for private equity businesses to get funded through the Opportunity Zone program. But uh, your your point is well taken that that marketplace hasn't really developed yet, and probably uh, real estate investing is more of a sure thing at this point and has a lot more uh, momentum on its side. But I'm hopeful that uh, we get some more operating and business investment as the uh, years go on here and more opportunities arise. Yeah, you know, we, I haven't really asked you too much about the company yet. I know you you got into it a little bit. And you noted that it was founded by two private equity entrepreneurs, uh, some background on them. That was their background. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about how Crescent was founded and, and when it was founded and, and its core philosophy? Sure. So Crescent, uh, as a business, is about three years old, as you alluded to. We, we were founded by two of my partners, Avi Stein and Eric Becker. Avi and Eric were both lifetime private equity entrepreneurs and fund managers. Avi had um, built a large middle market buyout firm called uh, Willis Stein. Um, Eric and, and uh, a group of partners started uh, almost 30 years ago a growth equity business called uh, Sterling Partners. And both had very successful private equity careers, both as investors and as, as fund managers. And unrelated, a number of years ago, significant life events forced both of them to step away from their businesses to focus more on you know, their health, their families and ultimately what they were doing with their own personal capital. And, you know, again, having created their wealth through private investing, they had a, a deep-rooted belief in the value of private markets and felt like long-term investments in private operating companies and real estate was the way that multi-generational wealth was created. And they, they wanted to form a firm around that philosophy and the idea of bringing those types of opportunities to a broader network of people who may not have access to those type of idiosyncratic, off-the-run, direct investment ideas. And so they founded Crescent about three years ago and, and ultimately built a business that was built around the way they were managing capital for their families. So created a multifamily office where we managed capital on behalf of a group of now well over 300 families focused on investment advisory, you know, top-down investment advisory, uh, as well as you know, broad-based family office services. So think of it as kind of an outsourced family office model. 
that side of the business today uh, has about six and a half billion in AUM, uh, 120 people in eight offices around the country. Uh, and then related to that, we created Crescent Partners to really focus on sourcing, executing, and providing access to private market opportunities. And so Crescent, Crescent Partners was formed two and a half years ago. And, and the mission of Crescent Partners is to create investment opportunities for Crescent and the family office there, but also to partner with other single family offices, uh, wealth management firms, and, and in some cases, institutions to provide access to, to these private investments. So we have teams focused on direct private operating businesses and making direct investments there. We have a direct real estate team. Um, we have a private equity secondaries team and now have a, an opportunity zone fund team, which as you can imagine, was not part of the original business plan. But I think, again, when we started to, to learn about the legislation and, and the Opportunity Zone program, it aligned with so much of, of why we had built the business. Again, long-term investments in private assets, sophisticated tax planning and structuring. Again, this, this entrepreneurial mindset, um, you know, all of that lined up very well for us and you know also we were a and are a you know relatively young nimble uh, entrepreneurial business and so seeing an opportunity like this you know we were fortunate in being able to to move quickly to take advantage of that so that's that's a little bit on the uh, the crescent origin story and the the timing lined up very well too it it sounds like uh, if i got my timing correct the opportunity zone legislation was passed right around the time the business was formed is that right or, or shortly thereafter that's about right. I think we officially formed in October of 2017, and the legislation would have been passed in December of that year. So, you know, really, it was about the same time. And again, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think that's in, in part one of the value propositions of our business is we, we can be nimble and, you know, we aren't burdened by a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of legislation or uh, regulation. And again, it's that entrepreneurial spirit that, you know, when we see opportunities like this that align with our core thinking and, you know, with our skill set, you know, we can move pretty quickly to take advantage of those. Good. Uh, we're wrapping up pretty soon here, Nick, our conversation today, but I want to ask you about the current coronavirus pandemic. We're recording this in early May of 2020, and uh, much of the nation still under stay-at-home orders, and the economy's been ravaged to a certain extent. Uh, a lot of projects have been put on hold. A lot of fundraising's been put on hold. Uh, a lot of investors sitting on the sidelines, I would imagine. Uh, a lot of uncertainty in the markets, uh, both in the stock market and the real estate market, private equity markets as well. How has the current crisis affected what you're doing at Crescent, and and do you anticipate that it may affect uh, Fund Two at all? It's a it's a good question. I, I wish I could tell you I knew for certain what the future looks like. I think this whole thing is far from over, um, and I don't ultimately think we know what what the long term impacts will be. That that being said, I, I do think you know we we saw certainly a period of paralysis in the markets where I think people were digesting this. Deal activity was largely on hold. Um, fundraising was was largely on hold, uh, and I think that was driven, you know, in, in large part by uncertainty. Investors just didn't know, you know, w what the ultimate outcome is, or or even the near term outcome. And so I think there was a period of time where uh, things were put on hold. We we have seen, you know, some activity 
return to the market, though at you know a, a, a much smaller level than it was before. I do think some of the volatility over the past you know eight to twelve weeks has created, believe it or not, and it, it sounds backwards to think of it this way, but it has created capital gains. Uh, I think there was a lot of selling that took place, whether that was fear or panic, um, but maybe triggered some gains that might not have otherwise been been triggered. And so I, I do think um, there are still gains in the system, contrary to what you might think. And there is still value in a program that allows investors to defer payment of taxes on those capital gains. So I do think that you know the the thesis behind opportunity zones remains relevant. And I think as investors kind of, you know, start to, you know, return to some level of normalcy, whatever that might look like, and can start to think proactively about the future, I, I do think there there will be support for the Opportunity Zone program. I think we were, you know, personally, we were a bit fortunate um, in terms of our timing. You know, we had largely raised um, and closed Fund One. Um, we announced the close in late February, early March. So we had that capital effectively raised those deals mostly tied up financing largely secure and that that was fortunate most of the actually all of the jurisdictions where we are operating construction is deemed an essential business so those projects are largely under construction uh, with a few exceptions those that are under construction you know continue to and remain under construction we've not run into issues around supply chain or labor so work will go on and those are large scale in institutional development projects where you know the ultimate delivery of those buildings isn't for another two two and a half years and so the point when we have to lease up those you know those buildings hopefully the economy is in some level of of recovery to two and a half years out so we were fortunate there and then on fund two we we had only just announced i think march 3rd um, you know, the launch of Fund 2. Um, on that fund, we're targeting a very similar size and mandate, but have until the end of December 2021. So we have effectively another 21 months to raise that capital. We have not committed to any deals. So we're not under any time constraint to raise that capital and deploy that capital. So we have the luxury of being patient there and even potentially, you know, maybe able to buy assets at uh, better pricing or buy land at better pricing, secure construction at lower cost than we might have otherwise been able to do. So I think we we are fortunate. I think it would have been much more difficult to be in the midst of a fundraise or not have that capital deployed today because, again, you know, there, there's been a kind of pause in a lot of that. We were fortunate to be largely done with one and, and embarking on the other, and so I think that will ultimately be a benefit. And you know, last comment there, Jimmy, is remember too, and this is an advantage of the Opportunity Zone program. This is a 10-year plus program. Um, I think when we started on this, you know, we reminded our investors that you know this is 10 years over a 10-year period. We will go through a real estate cycle, you know, potentially multiple real estate cycles. Um, felt like going into this markets were already fairly top heavy. As a result, you know, we invested with very modest uh, to low leverage on these projects, long-term financing. And so that 10-year nature of the program gives us the ability to be patient. You know, what happens over the next next six to 12 months 
may not have a huge bearing when you really stretch it over a you know 10 year plus horizon knowing that we have good financing in place have good partners that gives us the luxury of again being patient yeah, some very fortunate timing there for you so good for you good for crescent being the beneficiary of some fortunate timing i suppose if this had struck uh maybe a few months earlier a few months later you might be in a little bit different position but uh probably still in in decent shape either way uh well nick thanks for joining me today thanks for the insights i appreciate your time before we go can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and crescent Sure, Jimmy. So we, we have a website set up specifically for this fund. It is CrescentDiversifiedQOZ.com, all one word. Uh, and that website has obviously a profile of the firm, you know, uh, details on the fund, uh, information on the underlying projects. So would encourage you to uh, to start there. And then, uh, you know, happy to connect with uh, with folks when they have questions. Perfect. Well, for our listeners out there today, I will have show notes for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. And you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Nick and I discussed on today's show. And I'll be sure to link to the new fund website as well. Nick, thanks again for joining me today. This has been great. Appreciate it, Jimmy. Thanks for having us. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you.